exploring the history of cannabis culture, one artifact and interview at a time. This is Canthropology, presented by the World of Cannabis Museum Project, with your host, World of Cannabis Executive Director, Bobby Black. Greetings, fellow cannabis enthusiasts, and welcome to Canthropology, the podcast that explores the history of cannabis culture one artifact and interview at a time. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Bobby Black, former senior editor and columnist for High Times and the executive director of the World of Cannabis Museum Project. Every episode, we'll be choosing a different item or items from our collection of around 500 rare antiques, artifacts, and artworks, and examining its unique significance and place in cannabis history. In today's edition, we'll be profiling a publication with a prominent piece of prohibitionist propaganda, the July 1937 issue of The American Magazine. You'd never know it by looking at it. But this seemingly innocuous women's magazine with a little leaguer on the cover actually contains an infamous article entitled Marijuana, Assassin of Youth, a pernicious piece penned by the notorious anti-cannabis crusader Harry J. Anslinger. This hour, we're going to be discussing not only this article and Mr. Anslinger, but also the circumstances that led up to the article, the motives behind it, and the broader topic of yellow journalism, which was prevalent in the mass media at the time, and the role that it played in cannabis eventually being outlawed. Joining me today for this discussion is World of Cannabis Museum Advisory Board member and fellow canthropologist Rick Cusick. Rick is the former ad director and associate publisher of High Times, a board member of the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, also known as Normal, Cannabis Business Awards Lifetime Achievement Recipient and founding partner of Whoopi Goldberg's medical marijuana brand, Whoopi and Maya. He also happens to be one of my mentors and dearest friends. Welcome to Canthropology, Rick. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks, Bobby. I really appreciate being here. Always a pleasure. So, Rick, I've invited you on the show today specifically because I understand that you've actually done some fairly extensive research on this topic. Yeah, you know, um, when I was with uh, High Times in 2005, I became a co-editor for about two years, and I wanted to write my own history of uh, cannabis legalization and the history of cannabis. So I did a deep dive, and um, I found out that a lot of things that we took for granted about how marijuana became pro um, prohibited in the first place simply weren't true. There was a, a long march to that event. We have a very short story we usually tell. So uh, I'm glad you asked me. Maybe we can talk a little bit more, in more detail about how it happened. Yeah, you know, uh, there were certainly some uh, well-known uh, facts out there that I thought were, you know, understood and accepted that you kind of punctured a hole in uh, that balloon a little bit with uh, some of your research. So we'll get to that eventually. Um, but first, I'd like to just start uh, by letting everyone know about the American Magazine. It changed names a whole bunch of times. It started off as Leslie's Popular Monthly. It started in 1876. It turned to Leslie's Monthly Magazine, Leslie's Magazine, and then the American Illustrated Magazine. And then in 1906, they brought in a bunch of muckraker journalists. Uh, muckrakers were the investigative journalists of the day who were exposing corruption uh, in politicians and, and, and companies and stuff. Um, and they brought these muckrakers in to redo the magazine uh, in 1906. And then it was, uh, you know, making a lot of waves and doing a lot of great work until 1915 when it was bought by Crowell Publishing Company from the original company which published it, which was Phillips. And then they started changing the direction of the magazine. They got rid of the muckrakers and started gearing it more towards housewives and general interest. And this was seen by many of the muckrakers of the day as big corporations trying to gobble up the media and silence the truth speakers. That's a problem that I think we're still having today, huh, Rick? Well, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, today the takeover is complete. I guess it started back around 1900, though. <laughs> yeah, so the, the muckrakers were eventually, as this uh, transformation was beginning to occur in the publishing industry in America, the muckrakers, who were truth speakers, were replaced by 
what became known as yellow journalism, uh, yeah. which is what we would call today uh, tabloid journalism or a more recent term, fake news, I guess, kind of. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, and this term, if I'm not mistaken, really originated with William Randolph Hearst, did it not? Yes, indeed. Uh, William Randolph Hearst was uh, uh, very famous for saying, uh, you know, you – you provide the reportage, I'll provide the war. You know, uh, he he made up the stories that he wanted to make up, and if he didn't have the story, he did, he'd make up the actual uh, the event. He'd, he'd make sure the event happened so he could report it. He was uh, very much uh, a uh, advocacy journalist in his own way. Now, William William Randolph Hearst didn't own the American Magazine. It wasn't part of his empire, but he owned many other newspapers and magazines that were similar. Oh, yeah, many, many, many. He was a real mogul in the true sense of the word. It's hard even to make a – maybe I guess the only real comparison today would be like Rupert Murdoch. Sure, sure. Uh, so he was like the Rupert Murdoch of the day. Uh, also with 100%. his, uh, also with his uh, political leanings as well. I believe, right? Wasn't he? Uh, he was kind of racist. He was. Uh, yeah, he was, well, everybody was back then, in a large <laughs> way. I mean, you know, and and on top of that, um, you know, he was very much a uh, a capitalist. He was very much a conservative. What we would think of as a conservative. Um, he didn't like Mexicans. He didn't like blacks. Um, he. Uh, and he had very, very strong political opinions that he would assign his writers to go write his political opinions as news. Sure, and one of those writers was a woman named Annie Annie Laurie. Yeah, her real name uh, Annie Laurie was her uh, pen name when she wrote for the Hearst Newspaper Syndicate throughout the country. Uh, unless I might be getting backwards, she she wrote for both the San Francisco Chronicle as. Uh, um, Winifred Black, and then she wrote uh, as this Hearst National Syndicate for uh, Annie Laurie. It might be the other way around, but uh, between the two columns, uh, she was one of the most um, influential uh, columnists in the uh, first part of the 20th century. Uh, when she died in like 1925, there was like 25,000 people that came to visit her her coffin in San Francisco's wow. uh, city hall. I mean, wow. she was that, that famous. We don't remember her at all now. <laughs> and uh, she was one of the sob sisters, uh, the, the women that came up and uh, um, tried to, uh, it, what happened was there was a murder, uh, a Sanford Whitehead uh, uh, and Evelyn Nesbitt, a very famous murderer at the time. And Evelyn Nesbitt was a, a young woman who was in the middle of it, 19 years old. And uh, so they, assigned these women to write about her and they wanted to put a woman's angle on it. And so, uh, Annie Laurie, uh, wrote about it from a woman's point of view. And she became, since it was such a national scandal, the murder, um, the writers who wrote about it became very famous and Annie Laurie became famous through that. Uh, but then, um, she became William Randolph's first favorite writer. And the thing you have to remember about William Randolph Hearst is that he was a mama's boy. And he inherited his wealth from his father, uh, and actually his father had died and left to the mom. So the mom was in charge, uh, and he did all kinds of things. He bought his newspapers and everything, but he had to do it with his mother's permission. And then when his mother passed away, uh, and he loved his mother, uh, his mother passed away, two things happened. One, he assigned Annie Laurie to write her biography to his specifications, and two – he didn't have to ask his mother's permission anymore. <laughs> so he basically started doing um, what we think of as yellow journalism. And uh, in, uh, <clears throat> in uh, the 1921, they had outlawed uh, drugs with the Harrison Tax Act in 1911, but marijuana was excluded from that very controversially. A lot of people thought it should be on there because it was previously disparaged by, by a lot of other uh, writers in, in the, the aughts, you know, 1905, 1906. And there was a lot of people that didn't like cannabis. But uh, they excluded it from the Harrison Tax Act in 1911. And in 1921, uh, they were uh, looking towards uh, making the uh, the drug uh, prohibitions of the Harrison Tax Act. They were going to make them more even. It was, went to the Supreme Court. Well, at the time, it was, just, so, it was just cocaine and opium, right? That was what was on there. Say it Co- again, please. Cocaine and opium? Were the were the drugs yeah, that were involved? Yeah, cocaine, opium, and uh, heroin, and uh, and they wanted to exclude 
uh, medicine. They were on the doctors that wanted to, there was an exclusion for doctors to uh, prescribe heroin, and they wanted to get rid of that in 1921 and went through uh, the Supreme Court. And we knew it was coming, so he took his favorite writer, Annie Laurie, Winifred Brock, and assigned her to write about uh, drugs and how pernicious they are because he didn't want them to uh, revise the drug laws. So uh, Annie Laurie, around 1923, started writing about um, ha- uh, heroin within the, uh, the Hearst Empire. And I'm looking at a couple of the uh, uh, headlines right here in 1921, October 10th. Drug evil invades cities, towns, as ruthless rings coolly recruit victims. And the next day, Street of the Living Dead harbors dope sellers in the heart of San Francisco. You can hear (laughs) the phraseology that we've become used to, and this is the very, very, very beginning of it. Now, remember, that was in 1921, and she covered this beat for Hearst for about six years, going to 1927. And in a couple of years into it, in 1923, two things happened at the same time. She not only included her columns about what about the children? It's the children who are going to be hurt by this. And so on January 30th, uh, she wrote, Path to penitentiaries paid by lives of men debauched at an early age by narcotics. Um, prisons, uh, prison physicians warned that important that it, I'm sorry, prison physicians warn that importation and sale of deviant drugs must stop or America's youth will wallow in vice. So here we are talking about the children. However, um, within the next day, marijuana makes fiends of boys in 30 days. Hashish goads users to bloodlust. January 31st, 1923. That's it right there. <laughs> Most significantly, that same series, A New Menace, was The Viper. And so that's the beginning of what we think of as William Randolph Hearst going after cannabis. And she did it for several years. She went after it and was in there. And, uh, but, but she stopped doing this around 1926, 27, had written dozens, maybe more than dozens, um, of articles, anti-marijuana, anti-drugs. But she was out of that game um, around 1927, and so so, that was the end of William Randolph's Hearst war against wheat. Okay, so let's talk a little about the motivation behind uh, why he launched that war on weed. Uh, right. So one reason, one reason is uh, racism. He didn't like Mexicans or or black jazz musicians who were using it and thought to be propagating it to the white youth. Right. That was one motivation. Mm-hmm. Um, another motivation was to simply sell newspapers. I would imagine the sensationalism. Nobody of- cared. Nobody knew what marijuana was. Nobody cared. And yet that's the point here is that if he did this in 1923, between 19, 1923, 1927, um, marijuana was a major afterthought. I mean, you know, nobody really thought about it. And it was nowhere near being legalized or talked about being legalized. This was, uh, you know, they were talking about alcohol prohibition coming up. And maybe they were talking about, you know, in keeping the drug prohibitions. But cannabis um, was not a, a big issue. So it wouldn't have increased his circulation. It wasn't a controversy that was extant at that point. All right. So what is his motivation then? Because, and this is interesting, I've read in a number of sources, including Jack Herrer's The Emperor Wears No Clothes, as well as many, many online news stories about this, that one of Hearst's main motivations was financial because he owned a large timber mill uh, and he was in bed with the DuPont company who were creating synthetics that were in competition with hemp and that basically they were felt threatened by the hemp industry because whether it came to paper processing, whether it came to synthetics for rope and nylon was being created and all that stuff. And you and I have briefly discussed this before, and you said that despite all the uh, evidence I've seen – well, not evidence, I should say, all the reports I've seen of this uh, motivation online, you're saying you didn't uncover any actual evidence of that. Is that true? What I I figured out was that uh, it came from Annie Laurie in 1923. It doesn't seem to be that there was any direction. She was a working reporter who had columns, and she was just writing stuff. And she had already been writing about narcotics for a couple of years at that point. And so she extended it to what about the children, and she extended it to uh, marijuana because, like I said earlier, 
there was lots of negative uh, anecdotes about marijuana. It wasn't a, a big issue, but if you looked into the issue at all, you could see a lot of people like in 19... 19- Oh, seven and things like that. So because of the Mexican, uh, uh, the immigrant wave or wave that came in to the United States. So there was a lot of anti-Mexican uh, feeling and marijuana was the focus of it. But there's no evidence that that Hearst told her to do that. And also there was nothing. Uh, what were they trying to accomplish? You know, I mean, at 1923, 1924, 27, there, there was no move to do anything with cannabis. And certainly cannabis wasn't associated with hemp. And so, you know, we think that in terms of 2020 hindsight, we turn back and say, oh, well, they must have been trying to get it made illegal. But the illi- to getting it made illegal didn't happen until the 1930s. And Hearst was way out of the game before that happened. So I don't see any motivation for why Hearst would do it, but I do see why Annie Laurie would do it. She was a work reporter who was working that beat, and she was told to, you know, do this because of of her boss's predilection for what this was. Certainly, she was doing that, but it doesn't look like she she was instructed by anybody to do it. And if she was instructed by her, to what end? There was no way that you know anything was going to change at that point. It seems pretty much to me like a journalistic decision by a single a single writer who is trying to make her boss happy. Yes. Well, because I've read online that uh, Hearst's company was a major consumer of cheap uh, tree pulp paper that had replaced hemp paper in the 19th century, and that he was also owned a logging company and produced. Uh, DuPont's uh, chemical – basically DuPont's chemicals were used in the making of the tree pu- paper pulp and it was also uh, – he had a lot of advertisers in the papers from petrochemical companies uh, so that this was the motivation yeah, for Yeah, but it. the petrochemical companies were not uh, were not um, uh, threatened by this at that time. Uh, the, at that time, uh, the petrochemical companies were coming up with synthetics. That's true. Nylon, Banlon, Rayon. Um, and, uh, but there was, again, there was no real threat from that. If we look at it later and we talk about how wonderful cannabis is, and it certainly is. And uh, a lot of this comes from Jack Harrow. Now, let me, let me say <laughs> to, before I get into this, Jack Harrow was a friend of mine and I love the man. And I think that he is one of the most, um, important, uh, and influential people, perhaps in the top five. Yeah, definitely in the top five. Uh, of, of where we are now with, with marijuana law reform. Uh, that being said, uh, when he passed away, a friend of mine was writing a story and interviewed the Twilight Zone writer, George Clayton Johnson. George Clayton Johnson knew Jack very well, and he said Jack was like an Armenian rug salesman. He'd do anything to, to, uh, to close the deal. <laughs> and, uh, and that's true. Uh, a lot of things that we talk about uh, when if are – Jack overstated a lot of things, and he made a lot of connections that a lot of people accepted at face value about that. But when you actually line up the timing and how things went down, uh, for instance, everybody you into uh, everybody thinks that um, Anslinger, uh, Harry Anslinger, who will be coming in the story in a minute, and uh, Hearst were in cahoots, and in fact, they they worked in two different decades. And and if it, the closest connection I can have is that when Harry Anslinger held up his yellowed pieces of of uh, paper and said uh, the re- mus- uh, media reports say that uh, this is uh, pernicious and this is horrible and that cannabis is a dangerous tour, he was holding up Andy Laurie's old old stories for sure, but he was also holding up a bunch of stories that he had put into the press in the 1930s. Yeah. Now, and he did that himself. Uh, you know, we'll get into Riley Cooper and the people who yeah. wrote that stuff. Well, that's that's but, a misconception. That's a misconception. The the Hearst and Anslinger collab uh, is a misconception yeah. that I myself believed for a while. But that after research, I I agree with you. It doesn't hold up. Obviously, the dates are all wrong, and they don't have any personal connection. But uh, Anslinger's connection is is through other people. But before we get into Anslinger, I just want to go back to Hearst yeah. for one more moment. So if he wasn't using it to sell papers and he wasn't there was no financial interest for him why was he on this crusade against weed was it just no, because well, wait, his personal- he wasn't and he was 
Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. So why did he that, why did he give her license to do that? Because he gave her license two years ago to go after narcotics. So she was on the narcotics beat. And remember, cannabis was considered a narcotic. She didn't write about it for two years. And then when she did write about it, the first thing she wrote was also about kids because kids were using pot back then. And, you know, they, they, LA, which is where uh, a lot of this started, made a, uh, marijuana illegal in 1915 under a poison law. So th- there was some negative input about marijuana, but I don't think Hearst told Annie Laurie to write about this. I think she was a working reporter who was working a beat and was finding different ways of covering the subject. And it seems to, and you know, I can see as a reporter, that's what she was doing. There's no smoking gun where he told her to do it. Everybody just assumes he told her to do it. Right now, you just ask me, why was he so much against marijuana? We don't know that he was. <laughs> you know, what we do know is that he, he was against the narcotics uh, legislation that was coming down in 1921, and he assigned his favorite writer to do this, and she covered the beat for six years. And about two or three years into that coverage, she began to talk about cannabis, which has also been vilified in the past because of its association with Mexicans and things like that. Yeah, you're right. Hearst, people are uh, correct when they say Hearst was a racist, but there's nothing that actually shows that his racism was what told Annie to write those stories. So she's the and real villain so, here, not Hearst. Well, yeah, I'm not, I think that you know she was a I don't know a villain again. It, it, From I our think pers- that she was just covering a beat. Right now, you know, like <laughs> you got guys who are covering um, uh, uh, stories now about drug about drugs, they'll write bad stuff about pot because they hear it from the government. They'll write that, they'll cover it, you know? And I think that's what she did. She covered it. And then, of course, she was this very, very, very acerbic. I just read those things to you. You know, she spoke in hyperbole. But she spoke in hyperbole about heroin. She spoke in hyperbole about all the other drugs, cocaine and stuff, for before that. So that was just part and parcel for what she was doing. And it was also... And again, you got to remember, she was a very, very popular columnist. You know, he didn't tell her to do these things. She was doing these things. She was a very, very, uh, by the way, before all of this, she had done, had a lot of success in her uh, uh, columns and in her journalism. And actually, she was, I believe, uh, one of the uh, um, role models when they came up with Lois Lane. You wow. know, Lois Lane and later on the, the Simon Schuster, they, they were aware of these people and their reputations. And Amy Laurie was like the, the hardcore push reporter that hid under the table and got the story, that kind of thing. Wow. And so she was a pro and she was the one who started something that became horrific. Uh, and the agency for it becoming horrific was Harry Ansler. Yeah. Well, um, the other thing uh, I want to comment about when this, in this era of yellow journalism and Hearst is that this is around the time when the term marijuana first began being used, right? Because before that, Americans were very familiar with cannabis and hemp. Uh, cannabis was being widely used in remedies and tonics, uh, cannabis indica, and, uh, and hemp was used for a long time for ropes and sales and all kinds of other things. Um, so th- the terms cannabis and hemp were not scary at all to America at the time but this new right. this new drug where they framed it they rebranded it right as this new drug that the Mexicans and the jazz musicians were smoking was this marijuana and they really didn't associate marijuana with cannabis or hemp at all right well um, the first uh, reference that we have here um, uh, it was a it was a sonoran name. Uh, from the 19th century, uh, Sonora is a, a state, a southern state in Mexico. And so marijuana was the name uh, that they used for it down there. Um, I have a, a citation here from 1917 uh, after um, they had done the, uh, the uh, Supreme Court had changed the uh, Harrison Act around. I'm sorry, that was no, before the Supreme Court got it. In 1917, a government-funded racist screed uh, was ridiculously over-the-top title uh, to see whether or not the Harrison Act was actually doing what it was supposed to be doing. And it said, it's a report on the investigation in the state of Texas. This is in title. 
of the uh, report from 1917. Report on the investigation stated Texas, particularly along the Mexican border of the traffic in and consumption of a drug generally known as Indian hemp or cannabis indica, known in Mexico and states bordering on the Rio Grande River as marijuana, sometimes also referred to as Rosa Maria or Juanita. That's the title of the paper. (laughs) (laughs) And so it was used in official reports and so at that point, the word creeped into popular usage, and certainly Annie Laurie, by the time she got to write about it in 1923, referred to marijuana because she had read that report about Texas in 1917 and probably a lot, number of other things as well. So uh, like many other words, uh, it, you know, it fell into the usage, uh, you know, much like how many words do we have for pot, you know, and they all fall into usage. And they become popular and they fall down. And marijuana was one of them. And then when the uh, the smears started happening, that was the word they used. And certainly there was a racist element in using that word instead of cannabis. But that word was used in a lot of in a lot of places, not just in Hearst newspapers. But it did originate in America during that time, during that era. Yeah, like I said, it was used uh, after the after the Harrison Tax Act excluded cannabis, and it was a controversial exclusion. Then you can see here it comes up in a report, a government report in 1917, to see how well the decisions of the Harrison Act were uh, working in the real world. That was about Texas and marijuana, but there was other reports about how well or not how well the Harrison Tax Act was doing. Um, in with other drugs. So yeah, so again, we have this very small story that we'd like to tell a nice, neat little story. Uh, Hearst came along and he was the one who put it in because he hated Mexicans. And so he put this word in and he pushed it out. There's some truth to all of that, but that's not the truth with the capital T. The truth is it was all very much of a process and it took place over 15 years and it culminated in the 1930s with Anselator. But prior to that, you know, uh, it was used in a variety of ways and not just exclusively by Hearst. And it certainly wasn't the racist term. It was used to associate people with Mexicans. Or I suppose you could say that was a racist term. But, you know, yeah, I always thought that the, the word marijuana got a poor short shrift in the <laughs> history. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a little break, but please stick around uh, because when we come back, we're going to dive deep into Harry Anslinger and how he got involved in this whole process and came to write this article that we're discussing. So stick around. That's where it gets interesting. (laughs) Well, stick around. We'll be right back with more on Canthropology. The Treasury Department intends to pursue a relentless warfare against the despicable, dope-peddling vulture who preys on the weakness of his fellow man. And that, my friends, was the voice of the one and only Harry J. Anslinger, America's first drug czar and the man who is pretty much single-handedly responsible for cannabis becoming illegal in the United States. Welcome back to the show. This is your host, Bobby Black. My guest this episode is World of Cannabis Museum Advisory Board member, uh, Rick Cusick. Rick, welcome back. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So before the break, we uh, we went through a lot of background about yellow journalism, uh, about the American magazine, and about William Randolph Hearst and, uh, and Annie Laurie and, and their role in setting the stage for basically the American turn on on cannabis, on marijuana, how it went from being a fairly, you know, innocuous, useful plant to suddenly becoming a, a, a public enemy number one. Um, but the man who's really responsible for for translating the the sensationalist news stories into actual law and actual prohibition is Harry Anslinger. So. Um, yeah. Let's dive into Harry Anslinger. Uh, I know you've done, like I said, you've done some research on this. He started off, he was born in Pennsylvania, and he started off in the railroad industry, right? Yeah, well, he was, I have it here, he's the son of a Swiss barber who wound up, his father worked for the Pennsylvania Railroad. And he got him to the company, he was 17 years old, and he was a really smart kid. 
and it took two years off to attend state college. But then he came back and he started working in um, what was the beginning of a public relations. He was a he was a uh, a railroad cop, basically. You know, if something if there was a if there was a, an accident or something like that, they would send an inspector to go see what was happening. He was he was a young man. He wanted to be a railroad cop, and um, right right coming out of college, and uh, the muckraking journalists were holding companies to the flame at that point, and Pennsylvania Railways was one of them. And uh, basically, there was a terrible, terrible accident back in, uh, oh, I don't know, I'm going to say like 1919, something maybe even earlier. And uh, Harry Ansley, it was a terrible accident in Pennsylvania. And in the past, you know, the reporters would just go on the scene and talk an accident or something like that and just write whatever they wanted. Well, there was a guy who worked for the Pennsylvania Railroad named Ivy Lee. Right, he was a Princeton graduate, and not only, not only Ivy Lee was also William Burroughs' uncle. Huh. And when we talk about Bill Lee, was a, the, the nom de plume for William Burroughs. He took it off of Ivy Lee, wow. and Ivy Lee basically was a genius who uh, invented the modern press relations. Uh, he wrote the first uh, corporate press release. He got all the reporters together in one room as opposed to let them walk around and answer their questions on the fly. He put them all in. He gave a single message. And Harry Hanslinger saw this. He was working there. And when he went to that, uh, that terrible site uh, where there was a tra- uh, train accident, they had uh, Ivy Lee came in and cordoned off the area, didn't let any pro- reporters on it, and wrote literally the first corporate press release that was on point, that was on message. And that's the lessons that Harry absorbed there. He married into, he married well, he married uh, Andrew Mellon's uh, niece, and Andrew Mellon was the richest man in the United States. And uh, Harry had a great <laughs> career ahead of him. He, uh, after he had left the Pennsylvania Railroad, well, Mellon was also on in, the. Uh, he was on a board member for the railroad, wasn't he? He was a. Uh, no, he was a, at the Pennsylvania Railroad. He wasn't a big shot until later on. Uh, he was no, like I'm a saying Mellon, Mellon was a Pennsylvania Railroad board member of the company. That's probably uh, not how, to my knowledge. That I, I when I was doing some research that came up in the uh, in the research I was doing that that uh, before he was yeah, treasury- I, not to my knowledge but that could be that could very well be he he I mean Mellon was um, involved in steel and that's how you, the railroads got built so I wouldn't at all be surprised yeah but um, he spent about 10 years Harry Anslinger working for the State Department as a counselor a counselor uh, in various a um, uh, embassies. He was had positions in Germany and in Venezuela, and and Mellon had a significant business holdings in both Germany and Venezuela. So yes, he was absolutely looking out for Mellon's interests in those things. However, uh, he was promoted uh, the railroad cop at heart. He specialized in smuggling interdiction in, Ven- in Venezuela, and he originally and then he carved out an international drug policy in the 1920s, while. Uh, a uh, gangster named Arnold Rothstein was setting up shop. The 1920s, uh, you know, Roaring Twenties, where Al Capone and everything like that, one of the great, uh, we talk about uh, a criminal genius. Arnold Rothstein was a criminal genius, and he developed something that we're all very, very familiar with today. He was the first one to think of it and the first one to install it, which is the International Drug Cartel. He imported heroin from from China and from France, went to France, from France to the United States. That's where we got the French connection back in the 1970s. It's still been operated for all those years. But when uh, Harry came in in 1920, he had done 10 years in the in the uh, in the service of uh, the embassies. Mellon at that point was the Secretary of the Treasury. And he had already met Harry had already done some really good work in Venezuela for his his, uh, his uh, uncle and uh, and in uh, Germany for his uncle. And so he Mellon became the secretary of the Treasury and the Bureau of Narcotics and Drugs, BDN, I forget exactly what the Bureau of Narcotics and Drugs, something like that. They had the most corrupt organization in the history of the United States. Well, he started in the de- uh, wait, he one- started in the Department uh, Bureau of Prohibition first, right? He started as an assistant commissioner in the Treasury Department's Bureau of Prohibition, which which uh, Bureau of Prohibition, yeah. old PU. 
Yeah, old PU, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Old PU, yeah, old P- and that's yeah. that was the. I'm sorry. That yeah, you're right. They changed it to the BDI afterwards. Uh, the old, old PU, the Prohibition Unit. That's what it meant. Yeah. Um, it was the most corrupt organization in American history. One third of their agents were on Arnold Rothstein's take, including the the son of the guy who was run, uh, Colonel Nutt. It was run by a guy named Colonel Nutt, and his son-in-law was indicted along with everybody else uh, after Harry came to work, after Harry came to, the, uh, to run the company. Um, what had happened was Mellon needed somebody he could trust to go in and try to reform the most corrupt business in the United States government. And so he put Harry in there. Harry had a stellar reputation for being a no-nonsense guy who would not take a bribe. He knew he wouldn't take a bribe because he'd been offered a lot in Europe. Like Elliot Ness, <laughs> like the Untouchables. Yeah, it was like yeah. an Untouchable. He was the he was the he was the uh, the drug version of the Untouchable. <laughs> yeah. And so he put him in there, and Harry did great as far as uh, as far as uh, old PU goes. He got rid of everybody. He made it into a, a real organization that, that got rid of most of the graft, most of the thing. And, um, but when he came along and they asked him about in 1929, 28, 29, they asked him about marijuana. He didn't care about marijuana. He even said on one occasion, I'm, I don't have it here in front of me, but he had, uh, he said, it's, it's nothing that we're concerned about. And that changed over the next couple of years. And why that changed, everybody likes to say, oh, well, he's, doing Mellon's bidding for him. But more to the point, in the 1930s, was he needed his, uh, uh, now it was no longer the Prohibition Unit, now it was the Bureau of Narcotics and Drugs, and uh, he needed more money. They were cutting back his his budget. And so uh, the way he did it was he went after marijuana as a, a reason for being there. And he pulled out all the old uh, Andy Laurie stuff, and he pulled out all that. And it looks to me as if, again, he's not doing anything for Mellon per se. He was looking to make his newly formed organization, which was now free of graft, essentially. They weren't were looking for a mandate. You know, remember, this is the 1930s, and uh, for four years, three years, in those beginning of 1930s, there was alcohol prohibition. And and the G-Men and Jagger Hoover, they were going after Al Capone and everything. And Harry needed something else. Harry needed for for his career. He needed something to hang his hat on. So he created a, bu- a bugaboo. You know, it was cannabis. And uh, he went in. Now, the, the big question is, did he believe it? Because the, obviously the things he said in the ensuing years were ridiculous. And he never gave it up. The funny thing was, is even after he needed to, even after Andrew Mellon was no longer in the picture, and even after he no longer needed the budget increase, he continued to rail about marijuana. And why did he do that? Uh, nobody knows. Uh, it's an easy thing to say, oh, well, he was doing it for, uh, for Andrew Mellon. Well, okay, let's say he did it in 1934, 35 for Andrew Mellon. Why did he do it in 1949? Why did he do it in 1955? You know, it was more, he believed his own bullshit, I think, <laughs> what happened. And, 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 you know, when you actually look at it, you can see that the, the dates don't line up here and that he was, um, uh, there, High Times did an interview with Harry Anslinger in 1982. And as you read it, I read it. I sat down. I waited for him to like rail about marijuana. He wasn't really doing that. He was basically talking in more reasonable terms than we've ever heard him talk before about uh, why he was doing these things. It didn't make any sense because he was wrong, but it had very little to do with his family connections or anything like that. And and this again, this all goes back to Jack's idea that. Hemp was about to make a big resurgence and was going to kick the ass out of uh, out of uh, Rayon and Banlon. And well, all yeah, that kind see, of because because and Mellon Mellon was that another, wasn't true. Well, Mellon, like Hearst, what like the like the uh, claims about Hearst, Mellon was a member of uh, Gulf Oil, and it was I, I've read this on a number of articles online that uh, they were uh, in cahoots with uh, Henry Ford because there were uh, all they were gearing more towards petroleum fuel rather than hemp fuel at the time and uh there was no hemp fuel (laughs) where was hemp fuel (laughs) 
Well, the diesel, the that. diesel, the diesel engine was supposedly. Uh, they were working on how making it run off of hemp and and vegetable and seed oils and stuff. So I don't know. Again, uh, I don't uh, know. Maybe somewhere, but but it certainly wasn't a real threat to anything. I mean, oil was oil at that point was not just running cars; it was running machine, it was running factories. You know, I mean, it was it was what the trains and and all that ran on oil. And so, you know, there was no threat. Now we could turn around in 2020 hindsight and say, well, you could do that all with hemp. Well, maybe you could do it all with hemp, but they didn't have that conversation in 1921 or 23 or 25 or 31. You know, they, they were reacting to events as they were occurring. Harry Ensler got his job to clean up old PU. And then later on, when he started making a big deal about pot, it was because he needed something to talk about because he was being shown over by Jagger Hoover, who had the bigger mandate and was much more famous. And then, you know, he wanted to, he was like a mini Jagger Hoover. He wanted to be his own man. And so he needed his own war. And, uh, and so he railed at it. He railed at it beyond any reasonable way because, it, you know, that was his thing. He was trying to convince everybody that, that I have a reason for being here and this is my reason. And then when you say that Hearst and they had all these connections with Rockefeller and the, who was the oil guy, I don't believe when you actually look at where he got his money from, he didn't get his money from Mellon. He got his money from Carnegie. And, and you could, once again, a guy that steel in, uh, in uh, Pittsburgh, these guys were all related because they were all the filthy rich people <laughs> running the country. But I don't see marijuana or cannabis or hemp as being anything other than an afterthought to these folks. And the only person for whom it was a real uh, concern was Harry Anslinger. And that concern seems to have been born out of his need to increase his budget. And then, like I said, later on, what the hell happened? <laughs> and there, he seemed to believe his own bullshit right up until the day he died. But, you know, I think at that point he was just bought in. He was all in. The other thing, too, is... Uh, and we outlawed it. He got the Tax Act in 1937, right? But before that, Harry tried to – he didn't think it was constitutional to create a, a, a law against a plant. You know, we're an agrarian society, and it wasn't – you couldn't do that within the Constitution. Certainly, the federal government couldn't do it. And so he gave up on it. He, for a couple of years, he tried to get a uniform state narcotics act that would include marijuana. But um, he got something like 17 uh, uh, states to sign on to it, and some of them signed on and included cannabis, and some of them did not. It was a provision that you could include state by state. You could sign on to the rest of the act, but you could exclude or include cannabis as you will. Um, he could never get it done. He gave up on it and said, "I we're not going to be able to do this. And then in 1937, uh, uh, the Tommy Gun Act machine gun, they, they taxed machine guns out of existence because they had problems with, you know, Babyface Nelson, Machine Gun Kelly. And so they made, they, once again, because of the second amendment, as we know today, you're not going to take my guns away. So they had to come up with a, a way to do it that was constitutional. And the Tommy Gun Act uh, was a tax against Tommy guns, $100 per Gun. You could get a gun, Tommy gun, but you had to pay $100 for the tax license. And that was a lot of money back then. And we were talking about 1933, might as well have been $10,000, you know? Yeah. And, and so that's why it was put in there. The Marijuana Tax Act happened within 60 days of the Tommy Gun Act being approved by the Supreme Court and allowed. That happened in February 1937. Harry jumped on it and had the Marijuana Tax Act introduced it in April. And by October of that year, they had passed the Marijuana Tax Act and made it prohibitively taxed. They didn't outlaw it. You could have it. You just had to pay a shitload of money in order to get it. <laughs> and that's how we got the Tax Act, because one step at a time. But that happened over 20 years. So how can we talk about an individual trying to have an agenda to outlaw marijuana, to keep their trees or keep their oil or keep when it didn't happen for 20 years. And it happened over 10 different 
you know, scenarios. And Mellon actually died so by then, that right? That was the plan. It was a really bad plan. And Me- Mellon actually <laughs> died by then. He had he had he had already died at a certain point, right? Yeah, yeah. I, again, well, yeah, he he was out of the picture, but he had already done his damage. Yeah, you know. And again, why then? Why did Harry? I mean, again, Mellon was dead too. Why did he keep at it all into the forties and fifties and sixties? Because he, it was a professional. You know, we, we do this at high times, too. You remember, you know, we would hear things and we'd, we'd say that that's true. And then later on, we find out that's not true. Because, but we wanted to, to believe it because it sounded like the right thing. And this is just human nature. And I think that's what happened with cannabis. I don't think there was a, a big conspiracy to get rid of it. I don't think that hemp was on the rise. It was not on the rise. It had been falling precipitously since like 1910. And uh, and you know Jack puts the, the 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 popular science on the thing and said oh in 1937 this is the thing of the future that was an article in a magazine that wasn't proof of anything huh. and sure uh, you know it, it there was a lot of good things about cannabis and that got reported and there was a lot of lies about cannabis and those came to run the show and Harry Anslinger was the person who did that he had uh, when he held up his file of, of um gore files of uh, yeah the uh, of the newspapers and, and before congress he called and, them and the gore files that did, yeah that, yeah the gore files that i was looking for when he had the uh, gore files half of them were Andy Laurie's old yellowed columns that's why they call them yellow journalism right and <laughs> that's the old yellowed one and then he also had his own articles written in the american magazine and other like that by harry anslinger assassin of youth and that was really written by Riley Cooper, who was a, a writer who uh, uh, wrote about law enforcement. And, and Riley Cooper – Hold on a second, Rick. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but we have to take another quick break. So uh, just hold that thought, and when we get back, we'll talk more about the Assassins of Youth article and Riley Cooper here on Canthropology. Don't go away. Marijuana, the assassin of youth, the scourge of our country, is reaching out like a mad killer, mowing down the youth of our land, distorting their minds and leading them into lives of degradation and crime. All right, and that was a clip from the 1937 film Assassin of Youth, an anti-pot propaganda film that took its name directly from Harry Anslinger's article in the American Magazine, which we are talking about today. Welcome back to Canthropology. I am once again your host, Bobby Black. Our guest this episode is World of Cannabis Museum Advisory Board member Rick Cusick. Before the break, in the last segment, we were talking about Anslinger, about his life and how he built up his crusade against cannabis through PR that he learned back on the spinned PR back back on the railroad and, and all this other stuff. Uh, and we left off where you, you had mentioned about the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937. 37 is really the culmination, and that's the year that this article came out, uh, July 1937 in the American Magazine. Um, so Anslinger wrote this. He pulled from his Gore files, which was, as you mentioned, uh, before the break, mostly a lot of it from uh, Annie Laurie's articles in the old Hearst papers and uh, his own work that he he had put together. And he had an accomplice in this piece. He had a co-author, as you mentioned before the break, a man named Courtney Riley Cooper. Rick, you seem to know a little about uh, Mr. Cooper. Tell us about him. Riley Cooper. Riley Cooper was a very interesting character um, when he was a young man. He worked in the circus as a clown in the Bringing Brothers Barn Belly Circus. And then um, after he had started on as a clown, he also went to work in the front office. And he was a uh, he was a PR guy for Ringling Brothers. He had learned the lessons of um, Lee and had put everything on point. And he wrote a lot of uh, crime stories in 1920s and stuff. And uh, he was he liked uh, law enforcement. And he knew Jagger Hoover, and he wrote Jagger Hoover's uh, autobiography, uh, Ghost Wrote It. And so uh, when it came time for, you say, the article appeared in July 1937. Well, what was happening in July 1937? Uh, after the, uh, the machine gun 
uh, act in, in February, they introduced the Marijuana Tax Act in April in Congress in the House of Representatives where it passed. And then in September, I mean, in July, when that article came out, it was going to the Senate. So he wanted that to be in a very well-known magazine so he could talk it out when he talked to the Senate. And so he had Riley Cooper write the story and he gave him the Gore files and Riley very, very dutifully uh, wrote all kinds of hyperbole and all kinds of, you know, just exactly what Harry wanted. It came out in July 37 when the Senate was about to vote. And of course, um, there were hearings on that and there were terrible Terrible hearings where people went up and lied about things. The AMA lied about it. But it, the, it passed in a vote that hardly anybody paid attention to. And they outlawed marijuana and very little attention was paid to it. And then uh, it was signed in October of 37. And that's when we got the Marijuana Tax Act. So Riley Cooper was like the propagandist for Harry Anslinger. Uh, curiously, he committed suicide a few years later. And he committed suicide in the same hotel that Arnold Rothstein was murdered in. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, the whole thing is kind of tied up into a weird little triangle like that. But uh, Riley was basically the propagandist. Harry did not write his own stories. That was the guy who did. So this And uh, when we uh, think about all the the horrible stories, they came out of Riley Cooper. Yeah. In this article, they talk about at least a dozen different – uh, instances where young people and uh, various people, uh, one young woman they claim jumped out of a window because she was upset that she wasn't doing well in school. Uh, there was a murder, kids who killed police officers, and then a very famous case uh, of a man in Florida named Victor Lakeda who was uh, yep. uh, arrested for apparently hacking his family up with an axe, and they tried to pin that on weed. How much do you know about, about some of these stories that he talked about and, and whether there was any truth to them? Victor Lakeda uh, was not a man. He was 17 years old. And if you look, uh, go online and put his name in and put his, uh, go under images, you'll find a very famous picture of Victor Lakeda after he, he acted. He's the kid with the axe. That's who he is. Everybody refers, when they were making marijuana, boogeyman, they referred to the kid with the axe, the kid with the axe. Well, he was a kid. He had an axe. He killed his family. Um, They blamed it on weed. He smoked some weed. They blamed it on weed. But there's a very famous picture after he got arrested, his his mugshot. You can go see it online. It's all over the place. Take one look at that photograph. He's out of his mind. He's schizophrenic, and he's obviously schizophrenic in the photograph. You can see he's not, you know, you look at you look at the photograph, that guy's crazy. So, yes, they took a crazy guy who had serious uh, mental issues, and, yes, he smoked weed. Perhaps we would say today he self-medicated, you know, but uh, they blamed it on the weed. And they said from there on that when you smoke marijuana, you might – you know, kill all your all your family with an axe, as Victor did, and he did do that. He he was the guy that was thrown up as the poster boy to prove every every lie that they were telling. And again, anybody listening to this, go on to uh, Google and put in Victor Lakeda and take one look in his eyes, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Well, you can find it in the blog that accompanies this. Uh, there you podcast. go. That's what I want to hear. So one you can shopping. you can check it out on our World of Cannabis Museum site. It's in the blog. So this article came out. Uh, I read also that researchers later in the years to come looked into all of Anslinger's Gore files and basically decided that like 98 out of 100 of them were either false or misleading, that none of which – none yeah. of them had actually – Probably 100 been, of them, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. Because yeah. um, <laughs> I think he had like something like 200 different stories or articles in his Gore files and, and 198 yep. of them were, were wrong, were not correct. Um but, yeah, and, and again, probably a dozen of them, a dozen or two of them were probably the old Eddie Laurie things that she did over those three or four years. Another another handful are, are remember when he did that uh, tour, he went around the country for about a year and a half, and he made every kind of speech to everybody he could get to listen, trying to get to the sun onto the Uniform Narcotics Act and include cannabis in it. So he would show up in Altoona. And he would be the the um, director of you know the Bureau of Narcotics. Uh, he would coming to Altoona, and the local newspaper would interview him, and he'd hold up his things, he'd show Eddie Laurie's old things, and they would write about that. So it was a self-replicating process. 
you know, they would interview him. They would write the story about why he's there. And then he'd hold up the, the picture and say, see, you see what's happening here? But he was the one who gave him that story. <laughs> so Anslinger ended up remaining in that job as the drug czar, basically the de facto first drug czar of America. Yep. And he remained in that job for something like 32 years. He he was in, yep. in it until he was forced to retire at the age of 70 due to age. Um, and, and before you go on, before you go on, it, in, that, in the ensuing years, in 1960-61, he went to The Hague where he used – where he started off many, many years ago. And uh, he went there now as the uh, the government's representative uh, for drug policy, and he tra- he was able to get in the Hague. His greatest achievement was he was able to get marijuana outlawed on the on the world level. They got the the Hague to agree to put marijuana into the drug prohibitions that they were recommending on to member nations throughout the world. And so that, and that was like 1960, 61, and that was his last hurrah because in 62, 63, Kennedy, who had smoked weed, <laughs> John Kennedy, who had smoked weed in his life, uh, understood that Harry had to go, and uh, Robert Kennedy, who was his uh, attorney general, fired him. Yeah. And uh, that was the end. That was the end of him. And then, like I said, he was interviewed by Ratso in uh, High Times in the 1980s. So maybe the reason – I mean he kept that job for so long. Maybe the reason he kept the prohibition going was A, like you said, he he ended up believing his own bullshit. But also maybe just you know in for a penny, in for a pound kind of thing where he figured you know, if, 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 I, yeah. if I change now, I'll look like I was wrong the whole time, which is basically what the federal government has been doing in the U.S. in general. They, they don't want to admit that they lied and they were wrong in the beginning, so they just per- keep perpetuating the propaganda. That's right. They perpetuate it. And that's what you do with propaganda. You never admit it. You just keep, you know, you just keep saying it again. And, you know, in the modern era right now, in this this age of mendacity that we live in, political mendacity, you know, the, the lesson of Donald Trump is if you repeat the same thing over and over and over again, eventually a portion of people will believe it. Yeah. And that's what that's what Ivy Lee came up with. And he taught that to Harry Anslinger. And Harry Anslinger took it and ran with it, and he kept that message. He kept the message, and that was the that was the uh, the lesson of Ivy Lee: stay on point, stay yeah. on message. All those things that we hear about in the twentieth century about PR and how to, you know, ram home the message, ram home, but all the things about advertising, you know, and everything like that. That all came out of Ivy Lee, and uh, and it, one of his first and and greatest acolytes was Harry Anslinger. And uh, so the Marijuana Tax Act, which he got passed in 37, um, it didn't actually outlaw cannabis like you mentioned. It only taxed it like the Tommy Gunn situation. But what it did was it enabled authorities to identify people who were buying the tax stamps who, who were going to possess the cannabis. And it also gave them uh, uh, an agency to arrest those who didn't have the stamps, which is really how the prohibition started, right? They they would catch someone with it and they would say, oh, you don't have the necessary paperwork. You don't have the stamps. And that's how they'd arrest them, right? That's right. And also another part about that is that at the time when they did that, here's when we talk about, you know, the hemp thing was scared. Everybody scared the the capitalists with oil and everything. When they made the 1937 tax act, hemp was excluded from that. When was the last domestic crop of hemp grown in the United States until the 21st century? It was in 1956. The hemp industry went flagging down. <laughs> you know, it has rise in World War II, as we all know, hemp for victory, right? But but it, it was not part of the 1937 Marijuana Tax Act. Now, they they actually said the the hemp. A guy named Renz came in and testified. He was the uh, the biggest hemp uh, manufacturer in the United States, and he said, if you make this if you make this uh, law, it's going to put me out of business. It's going to put all all of us out of business. And they did it anyway, and Renz at that point, it didn't put him out of business, but it hobbled his business, and he limped and he limped and he limped until the last – he was the last one to uh, go, and that was like 1956. And so then hemp wasn't with us until um, – <laughs> to my knowledge, the next time it, it, we talked about hemp was the first issue of High Times. It was in the first issue of High Times. And uh- – 
1956, interestingly enough, was when the American Magazine published its final issue in August of 1956. Wow, I wonder if if there's a story about hemp in that. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, we should mention that the the Marijuana Tax Act actually remained the law of the land until 1969, right? When Timothy Leary. Right, and for years I didn't know how how they got around it. You know, like, okay, so how come they couldn't, how come they outlawed it in 1970 with the Controlled Dangerous Substance Act, right? How did they do that if they couldn't do it in 1937? And for years, I asked that question and I couldn't get an answer. And then recently it was answered to me. And what they did was in 1970, they said, well, now that there's a a market for this illicit drug, marijuana, we, the government can get involved because of interstate transportation. Once it's interstate transportation, that means the government can can regulate that back and forth. And if you'll all remember in, in its early 2000s, when Angel Raich went to the Supreme Court for medical marijuana, they refused her on interstate transportation issues. Right. And that's why the tax stamps were all issued by the individual states rather than the federal government. Right. Exactly so. And and again, you know, they, they can't – it's like guns. The guns and marijuana are very, very similar in a lot of ways in that the people who are for them think that they're an essential part of, of human existence, and the people who are against them think that they're an essential problem of human existence. And that's true for marijuana as well. And you, they originally, they thought you can't make a, uh, a crop illegal. But they tried and they tried and they tried until they finally found a way. And they originally said you can't make a gun illegal. And we're still having that conversation today. Yeah. So Timothy Leary yep. successfully challenged it and went to the Supreme Court in 69. He overturned it as unconstitutional. Yep. But one year later, Richard Nixon came in with the Controlled Substance Act and the modern drug right. war began. So was- and interestingly, that year right there, for, for one year, 1969 to 1970, there was no federal law against marijuana. Woohoo! <laughs> and that and that was and that was the big year for the counterculture. That was uh, that was right, when well, that everything was, was going on. So was, that's right. Was Anslinger that's involved? That's when Tom Fursad arrived in New York City. <laughs> so I imagine that Ansl- <laughs> Anslinger was probably involved, uh, speaking to Nixon uh, and involved in that, or no? Do you know? No, Anslinger was out to pasture by that point. He was no longer part of the whole thing. Um, I mean, maybe they gave him some kind of. You know, maybe he made a, a speech or something like that. But, but they did that uh, because the counterculture was in ascendance, and they needed to they needed quickly to do something. I mean, nobody saw Timothy Leary coming and outlawing the, the tax act, so they quickly had to do something, and they came up with what we now are uh, still um, living under, which is uh, the Schedules Act, Schedule One, Two, Three, Four, and uh, marijuana continues to be on Schedule One along with. Uh, cocaine and crack and LSD having no medical use whatsoever to this day. Which we all know is bullshit. (laughs) Um, Which we all know is a load of bullshit. So uh, Anslinger ended up dying in 1975 and was buried in Presbyterian Cemetery in Hollidaysburg, Pennsylvania, just outside of his hometown of Altoona. Uh, So in case any of you out there would like to go pay your respects to his grave, which I know our uh, our good friend and, and former colleague Dave Bienenstock uh, <laughs> claims that he has pissed on Anslinger's grave. Um, oh no, he did. He did. <laughs> he did. And, and I'll tell you something else. He he had a hard time finding it, even though he had the information. He went to go looking for it, and he couldn't find it. And the reason why is because they moved it because too many people were coming there to piss on it. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, yeah. You know what? Well deserved. He was the original and ultimate villain of of cannabis. I mean, he he's the main guy. Yeah, I mean, again, like I said, they, they, there was always enemies of cannabis, even going back to like 1900. And that had to do with Mexicans uh, and, and the hatred for Mexicans. That, I mean, something like, I forget how many, but it was, it was like 10% of the Mexican population crossed the Rio Grande during the Mexican Revolution. And that influx of, of Mexicans into the United States, into the American Southwest, which were not states then, you know? And so the, all that influx just created this enormously racist you know, attitude towards all of them, much like today. <laughs> and so marijuana became the bugaboo. But yeah, you, you remember uh, in the Mexican Revolution, you know, La Cucaracha is about marijuana. Yeah. You know, you know that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. And, and it's about the little cockroach and he likes marijuana. And, 
And that was a, that was an 1880s, 1890s song from the Mexican Revolution that they used to sing. And then when the Mexican Revolution was over, Mexico was no longer part of the United States. They drew the line, the Rio Grande, and Mexicans went back to Mexico, and the Mexican families who were here settled and became Americans. But more importantly, marijuana was here. <laughs> you know, it was in the, they brought it in, and there was two conduits in history for marijuana coming into the United States. One was the Mexican border, the poorest Mexican border following the Mexican Revolution, and the other one was through the port of New Orleans on boats coming usually from uh, Chiquita Bananas, and uh, they were coming in on banana boats from Jamaica and from the Caribbean, and marijuana came in that way, and that's where it was uh, adopted by the um, jazz musicians coming up in the 1910s, 20s, 50s. Yeah. And then it worked its way up with the jazz musicians, with the, the, uh, the African-American diaspora, which went north. And the jazz musicians brought their cannabis with them from New Orleans up the Mississippi, and you can literally all the points in the Mississippi, you could like, you know, St. Louis and, uh, and Memphis, these all had like moments of, uh, uh, of marijuana. You know, they had marijuana culture there. That's where Bill Burroughs picked, first started smoking weed in 1915, 1920. He was in Missouri, I think. Well, that's, uh, and, uh, that's, and, that's going to be the basis of, of probably several other podcasts. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I can go all over it. I, I wrote this history and I never published it. So it's all inside me, but it's not, uh, yeah, it's not out there. Well, uh, <laughs> it's all it's all fascinating, and hopefully we will get to all of it in the future uh, with more more items from the museum, more podcasts, more columns, and all that good stuff because that's what Canthropology is all about. But uh, I think yeah. we have thoroughly discussed the uh, article and the history of Harry Anslinger and yellow journalism here today. And uh, thank you so much, Rick, for your amazing insights and analysis. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show and i'm sure this will not be the uh last time that we have one of these uh conversations well for 25 years it has always been a pleasure doing anything with you bobby you're you're often my favorite person in the world so i'll be happy to come back well i appreciate that and uh there will definitely be many, many more topics for us to discuss on this show. So before we go, is there any projects or anything online uh, that you'd like people to know about what you have going on? Well, lately I've been writing for the drugtestnews.com because I dislike drug testing enormously and nobody's covering it anymore. So I cover it for them. And other than that, uh, no, I'm, I have other projects, but I can't talk about them right now. All right. Well, uh, be sure to go and check out Rick's blog on drugtestnews.com. And uh, we look forward to the new projects that you're working on in the near future. When I have something to announce, I'll be happy to come back on and announce it through you. All right. Well, thanks again for joining us, Rick. Take care and stay high, my friend. Yes, sir. Thank you. All right, everyone, and that's going to wrap things up for this edition of Canthropology. For more information on today's topic, to read our Canthropology blog, or to learn more about the World of Cannabis Museum project, please visit our website, worldofcannabis.museum. A quick shout-out to our great media partners, Cannabis Radio, Beard Brothers Media, as well as Leaf, Kennesaw, Skunk, Nuggle, and Canapolitan Magazines. If there's a guest or topic you'd like to hear us cover, or if you have an item you think is worthy of inclusion in our museum, you can hit us up on social media or shoot us an email at canthropology at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this show, we invite you to go ahead and click that subscribe button, leave us a review, share it with friends, and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again for listening. Join us again next time when our guest will be Keith Strop founder of the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. Until then, this is Bobby Black, and I am history. Mm -hmm.